But this has been a great week for me. I feel like I've been spiritually renewed. I've enjoyed making acquaintance with so many of you that I really didn't know before, and some of you I did know before, of renewing the friendship. And we've been fed so richly here. This is a tremendous conference. And I think we just want to express our gratitude to the RYM staff, Joe, you, and Michael, and Joy, and all of you. Let's give them a hand for all that they've done. When you're here, it becomes very obvious to you that this conference is just one expression of their love for you, their respect for you, and their desire to see you flourish in ministry. And to have a team like that who's always behind you, always supportive of you, helping you even to get placed if you need to make transitions or for the first time if you're looking for a full-time role. It's just a, a, a wonderful, wonderful gift to all of us. And for those of us who are not in youth ministry, but we're in congregation-wide ministry, which means we are in youth ministry, uh, we appreciate them so much because of the training they give you and of how they help us connect with you so that uh, we can keep churches healthy in their ministry young people. So I want to express my personal gratitude to this great, great staff and what they've done for us this week. Well, we've, in the evenings, been looking at Luke chapter 10, and what we've seen is Jesus gives on-the-job training to his disciples to the 70 or the 72, not just the 12. He's sending out really his whole band of people who are professing to be disciples. So it's a whole church. So therefore, we've seen that being sent into ministry, we can draw this conclusion that the Christian mission is every Christian's mission. He sends all of us out two by two or more. He sends us out together into every place. He sends us out at great cost. We've seen that we go. We leave where we were. We leave the comforts and conveniences that we might otherwise have had. We even go at the expense of our own life. We're going as sheep among ravenous wolves. And furthermore, we don't even take provision with us. We don't worry about our provision. Once again, we've seen Jesus is using uh, hyperbole to make his point. Uh, because he teaches us in Matthew 6, for example... Don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear. He clothes the grass of the field in a wonderful way. He feeds even the, the dumb little ravens. Surely he's going to take care of you. And that doesn't mean that we don't prepare properly or make proper financial or strategic plans, but it means that we don't worry. and We don't pile up and try to possess half the world. Uh, we go and expect him to provide for us. And when he does, we gratefully receive it. Sometimes, you know, it's hard to make a transition if you were in the working place outside of church work, and now you're making your living off of tithes and offerings. It just feels a little weird, and it feels almost like something you're not supposed to do. You feel like a beggar. Well, you are a beggar, and Jesus is saying when you go into a home and someone feeds you, just say thank you. It's from the Lord ultimately. And then we saw that he shows them exactly what he wants them to do. He wants them to take care of people in their physical and psychological and otherwise needs, all their needs, heal them. And then he says, I want you to pronounce something to them, the kingdom of God. And that's the gospel. It's the gospel of the kingdom. So we do deeds of mercy and we proclaim the gospel, which interprets the meaning of the deeds of mercy. So deeds of mercy don't do anybody any eternal good unless you give the interpretation of those deeds, which of course is the interpretation of all of cosmic history in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we come to the conclusion of our text today. Uh, and by the way, we also saw last night 
there are tremendous consequences in your ministry. There's a gravity to your ministry, whether you thought there was or not. I'm not talking about you personally. I'm talking about your ministry. The consequences of how you are received and your message is received is enormous. And Jesus showed us that in the fact that he's judging those who reject your message. So we have great pity for those who are making it difficult for us. They're the ones who are in deep weeds, not us. So we feel deeply sorry for them, and we continue to weep for them and pray for them until the final day. Now we come to verse 17. Some people wouldn't press on in this study of sending the disciples, but I don't think this study is complete at all without verses 17 through 24. In fact, I consider it essential to the understanding of being in Christian ministry and being sent by the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this wonderful portion of your word. Please, uh, again, mold and shape us even as we study it together that we may be conformed more to the likeness of Christ who loved us and gave himself for us, who freed us from our sins by his own blood and who calls us to take up our cross and follow you. Speak, O Lord, your servants listen. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke 10, verse 17, hear the word of God. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to, his, to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. All flesh is like grass, all of its glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. I know in dealing with teenagers sometimes you must feel like you're losing your mind. I mean, these people are crazy. When I look at the psychological manual, the DSM-5, which states all the categories of, of uh, psychological dysfunction, all the psychological diseases, I, I, I read through the table of contents and I go, that looks like my children. When they were in their teen years. I mean, they're, they're just nuts. You know the famous story that Mark Twain gives. He said, when a kid turns teenager, 13, put him in a barrel and nail the lid on and cut out a hole to feed him. When he turns 16, plug up the hole. Uh, that's his strategy. And I saw a New, York, a New Yorker a little cartoon that reminded me of my own teenage children one time. It was a kid coming in from high school and he had just handed his report card to his father. His father had some half glasses on, so he was looking at the report card like this and looking up at the sun. 
And he said, five F's and a D? And in the next frame, the boy said, yeah, Dad, what do you think it is, heredity or environment? <laughs> um, those are teenagers. And I, I'm, I'm the one who often st- speaks to the parents of the kids you all are ministering to. I'm trying to minister to the parents usually. And I talk to them about teenagers. And I say, you know, you know how your kids sometimes will just clam up and won't talk to you? Some of you have told me they won't talk to you either. But they especially don't talk to their parents. And I give them the strategy. I said, look, the teenage years were delightful. When our, we have five children. When our first one turned 13, I remember his birthday. Allison and I were in our bedroom. And sitting down in a chair, and I said to her, we are going to enjoy this. <laughs> and by God's grace, we have for 35 teenage years, you know, seven times five is 35. And we've had 35 teenage years. We've had a blast because I figured out the secret. When your kids clam up, what you do is you just go right around them to their friends. And you make friends with their friends. And you're... Your kids' friends think you're the coolest parent in the whole world because you give them time, you talk to them. They're willing to talk to you. They don't talk to their parents, but they're talking to you. And they say to your kid, gosh, your parents are really great. Your kid goes, but deep inside they know, I think they're right. Maybe they are great, you know. So you just go around them and you you encircle them. That's what you do. You encircle. It's like an animal that's half wounded. You just circle them up. And, you, and your kid can't get away. So you make, you make closer friends with their friends than they've got with their friends. And they're even jealous of you. you know, how come you're such good friends with Martha? I have a hard time. Oh, Martha's great. She's my best buddy. And then, of course, if you're a pastor, you end up doing all their weddings, which is so much fun. So that's a little coaching you can give to the parents next time you have a parents meeting. Tell them that's what Wilson did. Uh, and it all turned out okay, I think. But nonetheless... The reason I say all that is with these wacky people that you're ministering to who make you feel like you're losing your mind, there is an essential of Christian ministry that you've got to nail down. It's called joy. Melancholies, I'm sorry. I'm a sanguine, so I come by it naturally. But I'm not just talking about natural joy. I'm not just talking about optimism. You know, everything's going to turn out in the end. No, no, no. I'm talking about this deep joy that affects the melancholy sometimes more than the sanguine because we're happy all the time. The melancholy really knows this joy more than I do. This is what I'm talking about. I want us to look at what it is, and it is an essential to ministry. I'll tell you why. The writer of Hebrews, who talks a little bit about leadership, you know, he gets to chapter 13, and he says to the congregation in his letter, Hebrews 13, 17, he says, Obey your leaders who are in charge of watching over your souls and who will be held accountable for this. And then he says to them, make their job a joy and not a groaning. Now listen to this. For otherwise it would be of no advantage to you. So the writer of Hebrews is saying to all the Christians, you've got to make this a joy for Christian workers because if they're not joyful... It's of no advantage to you. So, ladies and gentlemen, what we've got to do is pray, Lord, give me joy no matter what the circumstances because I'm here to be of advantage to other people and I will not be if I do not have the fruit of the Spirit in full measure, the the fruit of joy in my life. 
Now let's look at the text and see the kind of joy that the disciples experienced. It's very, very important to us. Now, first of all, look at verse 17. Actually, verse 17 through, through verse uh, 19. And here, what we're seeing is there is a joy in experiencing the power of God in ministry. A joy of experiencing the power of God in ministry. Now, last night we talked about the power you have, whether you know you have it or not. You've been commissioned to ask very private questions of 15-year-old people and 12-year-old people and 18-year-old people about their spiritual life, their relationship with Jesus Christ. You have the authority to do that. that that's joyful. I consider it a high privilege to be one who is meant to keep the secrets of so many of my friends and then to minister to them in the deepest way. Part of the reason that we're in this ministry is because we love people trusting us with access to their hearts. And for this reason, you must be very careful with their confidences and be very careful not to cross the boundaries of impropriety, whether physical or emotional, with people. They're giving you a great favor by letting you in there. Don't take advantage of them. Don't manipulate them. Don't look to them for your benefit. No, you're going in there just like a good physician to help them. And there's joy in that. But then what the text shows us is there's great joy when you see the fruit of your ministry. And it's perfectly right for you to look for fruit in your ministry. In the PCA Book of Church Order, it says that elders are to be looking for the fruit of the preached word. So I preach, and my elders go through the congregation looking for the fruit of it, seeing what's out there. So we are looking and praying for fruit. Jesus said, you didn't choose me. I chose you to go and bear fruit. So we're looking for the fruit, the fruit of holiness in people's lives, changed lives, the fruit of people who didn't know him who come to know him. We learned in the text the other night that this ministry is meant to cost your life. You do put your life on the line. And there's a famous story of two missionaries, a couple from England in 1838, James and Mary Fowler Calvert sailed from England to go to the Fiji Islands, which now, of course, we would consider a resort. To go to, to, go to Fiji, oh my, how my wonderful, the South Pacific, staying, staying out in the sun under the palm trees. In those days, Fiji was full of cannibals. It was a very, very dangerous place to go. When James and Mary Fowler got on the ship, they sailed, it took them three months to go from England to the South Pacific. They're getting ready to disembark from the ship, and the captain of the ship, an English captain of the ship, said to them, Reverend Fowler, don't you understand you're taking yourself and your wife into great danger? These are cannibals on these islands, and Fiji is famous for taking the lives of many people. Uh, don't you know you're going to die? And James Calvert's answer has echoed through the corridors of missionary history when he said to the captain, Sir, we died before we came. That's the mentality we have. We've already died. We've already taken up our cross. So what can kill us? Nothing. We're already dead to ourselves and our ambitions. Now, some years later, the uh, language uh, of the Fijians was translated, and Reverend Calvert went back to England to commit it to writing and 
gave them their Bible. Some years after that, when he was a very old man, right before he died, he went back to Fiji. And all the people were there to greet him. Including the king of the island who had been converted. And 30,000 believers. I just get chills thinking about what James and Mary Fowler Calvert would have felt like getting off that ship and seeing 30,000 believers waiting for them. Oh, the joy of that. Now, I've not led 30,000 people to Christ. I've probably led 30,000 people to do bad things, but I haven't led them to Christ. And I'd, I'd like to lead 30,000 people to Christ, but I just, I just haven't. I haven't been that fruitful. But I have led some. And what great joy. I remember a kid wanted to marry one of our girls. Not one of my daughters, but one of the girls in our church. And he clearly was not a believer. So in the meeting, I explained to him, you know, uh, she's professing to be a Christian, and you're telling me clearly you're not. And the scriptures forbid such a thing. I'm so sorry we can't, you know, do the wedding as you're set up now. And he was from a kind of a prestigious family. I said, I'm so sorry, but look, here's the deal. If you'll spend time with me, I'll give you a good shot at it. Let me present the gospel to you and work with you over time. You may decide to become a Christian. Who knows? Otherwise, you don't get married you know, with a you know, justice of the peace or somebody. And so he said, well, okay. So I met with him for four weeks in a row, and I signed him a chapter of John every day and write in his journal, what is this saying to me? What do I not agree with? What do I not understand? And if I obeyed it, what difference would it make in my life? We did this for three weeks. I also put him in a Bible study and said, I want you to go to a Sunday night Bible study, meet with me on Monday. So, okay, we're putting him in the emergency room, okay? Uh, this is intensive care, ICU. So after three weeks of reading John, 21 chapters, chapter a day, when we had been discussing each week what he'd been learning, I said, well, what do you think? And he said, you know, there's not really anything here that I disagree with. I said, really? And I said, so? And he said, well, I just don't know what difference it makes. That's what he said. I don't know what difference it makes. Now, I had spent all these hours with him. He knew I loved him. So I go into my act, which was only half act. It was half true outrage. I was sitting in my chair, and I stood up and said, what difference it makes? I said, son, have you ever heard of hell? Have you ever heard of heaven? You know that you don't go to both places. You go one or the other, and it depends upon what you think about what you've been reading. Do you see how important this is? He says, chill out, Pastor, chill out. He said, okay, I'll think about it. I said, look, here's your assignment. I want you to become a Christian by next week. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't do this to a woman, but he was a man, and we were, we were friends by then. So I just said, your assignment is you've you got to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior by next week. So um, uh, I don't think I'd ever done that before, but I don't think I've done it since now that I think about it, but he came back the next Monday to my office for the, the follow-up, and he said, an amazing thing happened to me last night coming out of the Bible study. He said, was, I was walking out of the house, and I looked up into the stars. He said, do you remember last night that it was such a clear winter night that the sky was just full of stars. You could see me. He said, I realized he made all those. I mean, a real, a real being, a, a real God made all those. And, and I've been reading about his son. And, and, 
and I'm at odds with him. And he provided his son as a sacrifice so that I, I could have a relationship with him. And he looked at me and he said, and this is what he said. He said, Pastor, I don't think you'll understand this, but it was kind of like something fell off my eyes and I could see. <laughs> I said, yeah, I've, I've heard that before. <laughs> so, and then he said, does everyone in this church know about this? <laughs> I didn't say it to him, but I said it to myself, I don't think so. <laughs> so, I mean, if, if a man ever appeared prima facie to be a converted man, I would say that that young man appeared to me. I mean, I think, I think the Lord got a hold of him. But, but, you know, you reserve judgment. People can be enthusiastic. You know, teenagers do this, and you're not quite sure. So our missions conference was coming up the next month. Now, we had a very discreet treasurer. She was on staff. She never told me names, or, and I didn't want to know them. I don't want to know who gives anything, because I don't want to see a dollar sign on your head, or I don't want to see a big fat zero on your head either. I don't want to connect you with what you're giving. So I'm not manipulated negatively or positively either way. I just treat you as a brother. So I never wanted to know. And she was very discreet, never said anything. But during, right after the missions conference, I was walking down the hall to get a cup of coffee, and she stopped me and said, you know, Pastor, she said, the strangest thing happened at the missions conference. I said, what's that? She said, well, someone who's not even a member of our church gave $25,000 to the World Missions Fund. I said, well, Dodd, I said, that is really, really exciting, isn't it? Uh, so it's amazing. It, it does sound very strange. Of course, I knew exactly who this was. I didn't say anything to her. I didn't want her to know that she had revealed something to me. So I just walked down the hall, and I went into my office. I opened the door, and I closed it. And I went, yes! <laughs> Not because of $25,000, but because, as Luther said, the last thing to get converted in a man is his pocketbook. And so as a pastor, when you're concerned for people's spiritual life, you can see from their calendar and their checkbook and their friendships what's really happening with them. Here was a man who was really converted. Was I happy? Oh, my stars, was I happy? And you're happy too. When you see your kids' lives turning around, it's legitimate joy. Take joy in it. It's the fruit of God's ministry. And whenever you lead someone to Christ, I've always had the sense, I know you do too, he is sovereignly at work here. You're seeing a miracle take place right in front of your eyes because you're the doofus who is sharing the gospel. We know it's not because of you. You know, it's got to be because of him. A whole life is being changed. One of the more recent guys I led to Christ, he came from a liberal Methodist background. And um, I said, would you give me about seven minutes to share the gospel? And so in about 10 minutes, I took him from Genesis to Revelation. And at the end of it, I said, was there anything new there for you? And, uh, or anything you disagreed with or anything new? And he said, well, the part about God's wrath and a substitutionary atonement, that was new. I thought, I didn't say this to him, but I thought, good heavens, that's a whole gospel right there. I mean, <laughs> you know, liberal Methodists don't, don't teach the gospel. So that was brand new to him. I said, well, what do you think? He said, that makes perfect sense. And I said, well, you know, you, you can pray to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior on those terms anytime you want to. He said, well, I think I might want to do that right now. I said, 
are you sure? I said, we've only been talking for 15 minutes. How do you become a Christian in 15 minutes? And he explained to me, I mean, he, and, and he, he received Christ right there. I was just stunned. I mean, I didn't mean to be discouraging him. I just thought, how do you do that? Uh, it took me so much longer. I mean, I couldn't, couldn't figure that out. And so whether it's quick or long, it's the work of God. And you're just amazed. You, you sense his presence there. Well, these disciples, you see in verse 17 through 19, he sent them out with this power. They just didn't believe it. And they go out and they're casting out demons. Now, I'm a Presbyterian, so if anybody comes to me and wants a demon cast out, I've got a good assembly of God pastor friend. I send them right down the street. You know, go get your demons cast out down there at the AG church, and then come on back and be a good Presbyterian. Uh, I don't know how to do that. You know, Presbyterians, we build hospitals. You know, that's how we do it. Uh, and we lead people to Christ. Uh, so, but it's the power of God. They were stunned and amazed and grateful. They were thrilled. To have that kind of power that the demons are subject to you. When you lead someone in holiness, you lead someone to Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, the demons are subject to you. Now look at verses 18 19. Jesus gives them a little historical explanation here. And he's saying, well, you little dummies, of course they're subject to you because, because I conquered him. I saw him come down out of the skies like lightning. Revelation chapter 12, the dragon comes out of heaven. He's cast out. And as Jesus explains to his disciples in Matthew chapter 12, verse 29, he says, you can't enter a strong man's house and just pick up his possessions and walk out of there unless you bind up the strong man. How do you think you're leading people to Christ here and around the world? Because Jesus has bound up the strong man. He is bound. He's doomed and he knows it. You may not believe it. He believes it because he's bound. He's on a very long chain causing a lot of trouble. But he knows it's coming to an end shortly. And that's the reason we lead people to Christ. Because of our powerful Savior who has conquered the evil one. So Jesus has to put up with this with us all the time. He says, of course. Uh, I've, I've allowed that for you. That's the reason that you're doing it. I meant what I said when I sent you out to heal people. I give you power to do that. Okay, that's the first source of our joy is being in his ministry, experiencing his power, and bearing his fruit. He's bearing it through us. But notice in verse 20 what Jesus says. He says, do not rejoice in that, which is once again his hyperbolic way of speaking. He's not, he's not saying there's no joy in, uh, he, he's not saying there's no joy in uh, submitting the demons to yourself. Of course it's joyful. But by comparison, don't rejoice in that. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So brothers and sisters, there is a transcendent joy that goes beyond the fruit of your ministry. It's the joy that should sustain you every day of your life and every encounter in ministry. And it is that you belong to him. No power of hell, no scheme of man can pluck me out of his hand. That's what we just sang. Your names are inscribed. Do you think the Apostle Paul is a Christian? I'd say so. His name's in here. You know, over and over again, he wrote some of the book. He's got his name here. Guess what? I've got my name in a book too. Just as surely as he's got his in here. And his name can just as easily be taken out of this book as mine can be taken out of that book. It's inscribed there. And our joy must be rooted there. That's the reason that in Colossians 
chapter 3, you remember Paul launches into a discussion about Christian sanctification. Mortification, vivification, you know, putting things off, putting things on. Where does he start? He says, seek the things that are above where Christ is, at the right hand of God the Father. Set your minds on heavenly things, not on earthly things, he says. So his lesson on holiness actually begins with heavenly mindedness. And we are so earthly minded. We're in a culture that's just gripped by earthly, secular, secular means this world, this worldliness, this this temporal, physical, emotional experience. We're just bound up in it. And Paul is saying to us, like Jesus is saying to the disciples, men and women, you've got to get your, your mind on things above. Where, that's because that's where Christ is. He's coming back, but he's there now. And so you set your mind up there. Um, the famous uh, Samuel Rutherford, the Puritan, said, here's... Here's the Christian man. He's got his feet firmly planted on the ground. He's got his heads, hands on the plow, and his head is in the heavenlies. Some people say, you know, she's, she's so heavenly minded, she's no earthly good. Never met a person like that. The churches that I've been working with over the past two years have experienced a lot of division. I'll tell you what, their problem is not heavenly mindedness. It's very earthly minded. The people who are the most practical people, the most useful people, especially in Christian ministry, are those who have their minds set upon the Lord Jesus Christ in the heavenlies. So Jesus says to them, remember your name is written in heaven. And we spend most of our life, even in ministry, trying to build a name for ourselves. Some of us are thinking, how can I put out a book? You know, get my name out there. Uh, at least publish within the church. Now, I think books are very helpful. I appreciate everybody who writes them, who writes good ones. And I appreciate, and there are, there are some not so good. But you have to watch your motives. What are you trying to do? You know, some people just want to give a big dollar amount to some university so they can have a building with their name inscribed on it. I mean, that just kind of tops it off for them. You know, there's life. I, I, I did it. I achieved it. Trying to build a name for themselves here is completely futile. Totally futile. Let me tell you, some years ago, Allison and I were given, a, it was, a, I think, a 10-year church anniversary gift. The church so graciously sent us on a trip to England. Oh, I'd never been. It was wonderful. And, of course, all the places. Allison wants to be out there in the fields with the sheep. So we, we stayed out in the Cotswolds for part of the time. But then my time was in London because there's so many places I wanted to see, including Westminster Abbey. One thing I wanted to see in Westminster Abbey was the grave of the great David Livingston, one of the greatest missionaries who ever spoke the English language. I mean, I could tell you a lot about David Livingston in Africa, but we don't have time. But I didn't look carefully enough. It's uh, real obvious uh, if you read on it, but I, I just didn't read enough to see where his grave was. I just knew it was there, and I'd find it when I got there. So my way, when I go into a cathedral church, I like to go into the main door, through the main door, and then I usually, for some reason, I don't know why I do this, hang a left, see all the side altars, go around the apse, you know, behind the chancel, see what's back there, come out on these side altars, and then back down the middle aisle. It takes about three hours to do that, while my wife is waiting in the car for half of it. Um, 
So I got to the back of the apse, and I was running out of time. And I hadn't seen Livingston's tomb yet. So there was a woman who worked there, and I said to her, could you tell me where David Livingston's tomb is? She said, say again. I said, and I thought it was my southern accent. I said, David Livingston. Do you mind spelling Livingston, she said? I'm shocked, incensed. I said, L-I-V, and I spelled it for her. She said, don't think I know that. She had a little booklet. She pulled it out, and she turned. She said, under the L's, what are you? She said, oh, there it is, David. Well, he's right in the middle of the nave. So look, when you come into Westminster Abbey, do you remember the, uh, the wedding, the big wedding with William and Kate? They come into Westminster Abbey. You remember what Kate did? She came in, and she took a right, she took a left, she took a left, and then she took a right and went down the aisle. Do you know what she did? She walked around David Livingston's tomb. Right in the front middle of the nave. And someone who works as a professional there did not even know his great name. Listen, folks, if David Livingston is forgotten, what chance is there for you? <laughs> Big fat zero. Give it up. We're wasting our time when we live to make a name here. And so Jesus said, yes, the ministry that you're in is wonderful. Take joy in it. But soar to the heavenlies. Now, let's not go for supper before we get to verse 21. You've got to look at this with me. Just when you think it can't get any better, Jesus takes us to the highest place. And here is the deepest joy. You have joy and deeper joy, and now you have the deepest joy. And it's the joy of Jesus Christ. It says here in the text that in that same hour, he rejoiced. The word rejoice in the ESV is the proper translation, but it's just not adequate. A better translation would be he exultantly shouted joy. He was beside himself, if we can put it that way. It's the only place in the New Testament where we're told that Jesus rejoices in the Holy Spirit. He is full of joy. And what is he joyful over? Look at the text. First of all, he's rejoicing in his Father's gracious will. That's the way he puts it. You can see that at the end of verse 21. Your gracious will. He just starts in prayer to the Father. Father, you've not revealed this to smart people, to powerful people, and to prestigious people. No, Father, what you've done, your gracious will, is to reveal this to nerds, to little children, people who are not the wise of this world. You know, folks, it's very true that you, every once in a while you get a football captain in your youth group, but it's kind of rare. You normally get the nerds. Do you know why? It's the Father's gracious will. And Jesus just bursts out with joy that his Father is breaking all of the rules of this fallen world and going for the little people, if you will, like us. Then secondly, look, look why he's rejoicing, not just in Father's will, but verse 22, in Jesus' peculiar role. So He's rejoicing because 
The father is pulling off this upside down salvation plan and he's commissioned his son to pull it off. He's handed everything over to the son and the son has a peculiar relationship with the father and see how he rejoices in it. Nobody really knows me except you and the ones I choose to reveal myself to. No one really knows you except me and the ones to whom I choose to make you known. He's rejoicing in the peculiar relationship and the peculiar commission, the ambassadorial role that the Father has given him. But then, brothers and sisters, look, if you will, at verse 23 and 24. Now he's rejoicing over your peculiar role. He says, do you understand what it is you see and what it is you hear? He says, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. What is it that you're seeing? Him. You're seeing him. And he says, do you know that of all the thousands of years of redemptive history, the kings and the prophets longed to see Messiah? And you're looking right at him. They longed to hear his voice and you're hearing it? He's saying, nobody has had what you've had. Now, Moses divided the Red Sea. He, he was on Mount Sinai when it shook and the law was inscribed in stone. E Elijah was taken up in a chariot of fire, for heaven's sakes. These people had seen magnificent things, but he said, not like what you're saying. The joy of knowing this gospel and the one who provided for it and having an intimate relationship with him and looking into his face and seeing his joy. That's our joy. Our joy, ultimately, at the highest level, is a joy derived from the joy of Jesus Christ. And do you have any idea how joyful he is that a room like this would be full of people eager to join in his ministry. He is exultantly shouting with joy over you. <laughs> yes, over you and over me. As you go your way this week, don't forget. It's an essential because it is the joy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this privilege of knowing you and being known by you, of being your children, your friends, being your servants, being your disciples. Oh, Lord, how could we ever articulate the measure of our gratitude to you? But you have drawn us to yourself, made us your own, and you have given us a peculiar commission and a peculiar relationship with you and we go into this world with gratitude and joy. May the joy never leave us until we see you face to face. We make our prayer through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Amen. Let's stand up.